Pod for Good is sponsored by Tallgrass Estate Planning. If you're like me, you might hear estate planning and go, eh. You might think to yourself, I'm not sure why I'd bother with that. Estate planning is only for the uber rich. Well, that's not what Tallgrass thinks. Tallgrass founding attorneys, Laurel and Riley, think everyone should have an estate plan. They know estate planning seems untouchable to a lot of folks, like something you have to do inside a stuffy law firm where it feels like everyone is looking down on you, questioning your life decisions, and judging your financial situation. But I promise you, Tallgrass is nothing like that. For one, they work out of their home so their clients can feel at home. They obsess over making clients feel like they belong and are supposed to be there. They will take time to answer all of your questions, even those uncomfortable ones involving ex-spouses. They will work relentlessly to make sure your plan is exactly what you need to feel secure, at peace, and prepared for whatever the future has planned. So if you've been putting off planning for what's going to happen when you're no longer around to make anything happen, it's time for you to give Tallgrass a call at 918-770-8940 and start your plan today. Or visit their website at tallgrassestateplanning.com. Schedule a free initial consultation. It's easy. It's free. It's right there on their website. And of course, there's more because this is a podcast ad. If you tell them you're a pod for good listener, they're going to take 25% off their service fees. Stop thinking estate planning isn't for you and give Tallgrass a call today. Again, that number is 918-770-8940 or visit them on their website, but I'm not going to spell it out for you. Tallgrassestateplanning.com. Thank you again, Tallgrass Estate Planning, for being a pod for good sponsor. Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, why they care, what we can do, and most importantly, what you can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Rant9 Productions and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. I am, as always, your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today, our guest is Amy Curran, the executive director of the Oklahoma chapter of Generation Citizen. Generation Citizen is an organization that works to transform civics education so that young people are equipped and inspired to exercise their civic power. We talked to Amy about action civics, why we've seen social studies disappearing in our schools, and we hear a story about some Norman students that make you think maybe these kids are all right. And we still do not know what the Senate parliamentarian does. If you know, please email us. We are very excited to have Amy Curran, the executive director of the Oklahoma chapter of Generation Citizen on the podcast today. Amy, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. I was very excited to find out more about this organization and let other people know about this awesome organization. So why don't we start with the sort of quick two-minute summary of what Generation Citizen does? Yeah. So in a sense, I mean, we're here to make sure that students all have the opportunity, like we were talking before the show, about to have high quality um, social studies and government while they're in middle school and high school. So our mission is to inspire students to exercise their civic power. And we do that through our curriculum, which we have in several schools across the state. And then we also have professional development for teachers to help them kind of hone their craft. Uh, Our curriculum is action-based, so it's called Action Civics. So students are actually learning how government works by engaging with local policy. And as you can imagine, that is a lot of information for teachers to have as well. And a lot of the time they're learning right next to each other. So they're kind of learning as they go. And so we provide a lot of training for our teachers in that way as well. 
since classes in middle school and high school are broken up into subjects, are you working with teachers who mostly teach history? Yeah, so we typically house our curriculum in the social studies courses. So it's usually up to the school district, whether they put it in middle school or high school. And sometimes you'll see it in Oklahoma history, which is where we are in a few of our Tulsa courses. And then we're in a bunch of government classes. Again, that varies across the state where they put government. Everyone in the state is required one semester of government before they graduate, Uh, but we're really lucky that a few districts have a full year of government, and then that makes a lot more sense to put Generation Citizen in there, Um, because you can imagine there's a lot to learn. If you just have one semester of government, you're typically focusing on federal government, which is good and really important, but it's not as accessible for our students and teachers, and so the curriculum that we do is actually really focused on municipal government and state government. So it's a really great opportunity to partner that while they're learning the federal government, how that system works, translating that into state and municipal government. That's really interesting because I know uh, when I was in school, we learned basically nothing about municipal government. It was mostly federal, a little bit of uh, comparative government between different types of national and federal governments, and maybe a little bit about state, but not even much about state government. That seems to be I mean, is that a deficit you see at a lot of schools that they focus solely on federal government when they talk about government? That is a deficit we see across the country. And one of the big issues that or the big problems that generation citizens sought out to solve, um, because another kind of side effect, if you only teach federal government, it's not accessible to students, then they don't participate in government. And then they end up in their 40s or 50s where the government is, you know, something is really an issue for them and they don't have the skills or the knowledge to do anything about it. And so we really that's why we focus very much on state and municipal government. And that's also where all the fun is for the most part, because there's, all, you know, our, our students do everything from school safety projects to, you know, they, they do hit some environmental issues, but they have to figure out how do you make that? How do you affect local policy when it comes to the environment? And then, you know, it goes all across the gamut of what, of what they focus on. Well, and I saw, and I, I believe it was, I don't know, maybe your annual report. You know, there are references to different student projects where they made changes at their own schools. You know, there was one example where, you know, a group of students were changing the dress code at their school. Is Are projects like that part of the curriculum, or is that just encouraged as part of the process? So it is part of our curriculum is a framework that essentially, if you can imagine what an hourglass looks like, we were very clever and and used the hourglass as sort of our model. And now everyone uses cell phones to track time. But um, if you could think back to what the hourglass looked like at the very top, it's community issues. So students are looking at what are all the community issues that they feel like impact them and they think they could make better. And then they go through a process of consensus building where they decide on one community issue that they are most interested in. From there, they identify root causes, they select a policy goal. So we're very intentional that it is a policy goal while awareness building and fundraising and all those things are really important. If you know it's the policy that actually is what makes you know long-lasting change. And we're teaching government, we're not teaching business marketing. So that's also why we focus on a policy goal. And from there, they identify who is the person or people who can best make an impact on that or make a decision to change the outcome. And from there, they create an action plan. And so what you're referring to essentially is that kind of pulling it all together and creating that action plan. And yes, that is part of the curriculum, but it's completely student driven. 
So they determine um, what the issue is and how they want to address it. As we were searching and learning about this organization, there were what felt like a combination of a lot of different separate entities that I had heard about. Like there were aspects of school debate. There was some Model UN. There was some straight civics learning and engagement. And it seems like Generation Citizen combines all of these things. I find that fascinating as someone who grew up in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, as a liberal, where there was no training on how to defend my views to other people. All I had was what I knew and what was thrown at me. And it would have been great earlier in life to have that governmental knowledge, like not having to wait until the 10th grade. Right, Chris? Is that when we had our AP government class? Yeah. It would have been nice earlier to have some sort of firm foundation on both how my city government worked and how my state government worked. And then, of course, the federal government, because the way the federal government works can be a little archaic, but state governments are also kind of wacky and different for each state. They are. I think that, you know, one thing that's really unique and intentional about Generation Citizen, as you use the model model UN and youth in government, there's all sorts of different components that you probably see kind of reflected in the work that we do. All of those are really great organizations, but one of the huge gaps is, you know, public education was set up to uphold this like lofty dream that young people or that students would learn how to be civic minded, how to participate in their community and how to ultimately uphold our democracy. Yet over the last like 40 years, we've chipped away at, you know, a semester here, a semester there to the point where I used to, you could, it would be pretty common that you would have six or eight government-ish, whether it be government or policy or current events, all those type of courses. And now it's really parsed down to very few. And when you look at our, our public schools, it's typically in most school districts, our Black, Hispanic, low-income students get a third of the government courses that the rest of us get. And the programs that you named, again, are fabulous. And we are you know huge partners and proponents of them. And that's after-school work, just like they're after-school STEM organizations. But if you take government out of the school, you miss a huge swath of students who aren't able to participate, perhaps, in those other activities or, you know, whether they don't have access or they don't have the resources, whatever. We really believe strongly that to have a responsive and inclusive government, everyone needs to have the skills and the knowledge to participate. Yeah, and something I learned as an adult and even as a in their 30s adult was that local government, you can make the most change to local government and have an impact on your daily life, right? Federal government is something that is very difficult to to change. It doesn't mean you shouldn't organize and try, but it's much more difficult, even at the state level it is. But you can go to a city council meeting and voice your concerns directly to the city council and potentially sway a vote for something that can greatly impact your life. And at least anecdotally, it appears that people who are more engaged in city government are more engaged generally, you know, as citizens in our country. So it seems like that could be really powerful, especially for people who generally feel that, you know, less empowered by the government and feel like that they have less control of the government. Absolutely. And it affects every aspect of of civic engagement. When you think about voting, we look at a lot of the work that we do because we do quite a bit of policy and advocacy work as well, really trying to make the doors wider for opportunity for students to engage. And some of that is, is through voting. 
But we know that if young people, or really anyone, but specifically young people, participate in one offline civic engagement opportunity, so registering people to vote or working on a campaign, any of those kind of activities, speaking at a city council meeting, that the likelihood that they're going to vote and continue to participate and to continue to hold their elected officials accountable just goes up exponentially. And so we want to see that happening. Like I said, you know, we have the site here in Oklahoma, but we a Generation Citizen has sites in New York and in California and um, in Massachusetts and in Texas. And we want, you know, it really is very much part of our mission to make sure and this is how it does ultimately affect federal government, is that when you have that kind of participation coming from across the country, then the interests um, and the values of every part of our of our country is really represented in the policy that you see. And hopefully we get to a point where we are not as divided, but we're able to have conversations about policy and really talk in a nuanced way about how that's affecting people on the ground, how that's affecting kids in Oklahoma City public schools and Tulsa public schools and Broken Arrow and, you know, all the way to Boston, Massachusetts and, and New York City kind of thing. Before I get to my next question, I just want to again mention to our to friend of the pod and Chris and my city councilor, Kara Joy McKee, that I still do not have streetlights on my street. Kara, get on it, please. Also, thank you again. Thank you again for putting up the crosswalks on Cherry Street for me. It really makes me feel safer. I'm sorry, Jesse. When you talked about the slow removing of civic curriculum from our schools, I have my assumption about why that was, but has your organization or any organization sort of studied why that was? Was it just along with the general cutting of public education budgets across the country? Was it something more nefarious? Was there an agenda behind removing civic education? Yeah, well, I don't know at the beginning if it was a, really a sinister reason, but I think when it when they started when we started to recognize that there was like a huge shift, the one or two things that happened were sort of both the, the Sputnik and the space race and, and like a heightened just almost fear that our students wouldn't have enough math and science to compete at the international level in that way. That shifted and then really with no child left behind and testing, uh, social studies is challenging to test. When it was pulled out of being one of the more tested subjects, then they stopped providing resources for schools and teachers and everything. And one of the things right now that I'm totally geeking out over is sometime this week they're going to be or hearing that the U.S. Senate, they're going to be hearing the Educating for Democracy Act, which I think some are calling the Civic Secures Democracy Act. It's H.R. 820-8295, and it is all focused on shifting this to where civics education and government is as much of a part of school as some of the STEM fields. And when they kind of figured out the fiscal impact of that, you know, they figured out that $50 per student is spent a year per student on in the STEM fields and approximately five cents per student is on civics education. And so this is a huge, like a robust bill that would really shift that. It would have some standards as far as, you know, we want students to understand content and dates and names and all that stuff. That's important. But if you don't know how, you know, policies affected the Cold War or what policies came out of different events in history and how they affect our life now, and specifically how they affect our community. You know, you look at Tulsa and the Tulsa Race Massacre, and and there was specific policy issues that were happening that kind of led up to that. And then definitely things that shifted in Tulsa 
following that and things that people are continuing to try to really bring into a more inclusive city. And that's important for students to know when they're, they're learning that. So not just understanding the history of that event, but understanding the policy implications as well. And so anyway, the civics bill would be really exciting to see happen and, and see how you could implement something like that across the country. I find really intriguing. Is this the Educating for Democracy Act? H.R. 8295? Yep. Okay, because what I'm seeing right now is from the last Congress, and so I just didn't know if it carried over. People have been working on this for a really long time, and Tom Cole, actually, Congressman Cole, is really active in this work. And that's why I was saying it's called Educating for Democracy, but they've also been throwing around Civic Secures Democracy Act. So we're even going back to title to like figure out exactly what we want to, to call it, apparently. Either way, the dozen or so like really clear implications for our government curriculum is really, really important and would provide funding to states. You know, I think at like 95% to a 5% match from the state, I mean, that's a significant federal investment in civics education that could be really huge for our schools. Amazingly, I think that's the first time Congressman Tom Cole has come up in this podcast, and I did not expect that first time to be a positive. He's, he has been a champion when it comes to this, I will tell you. So, yes. Is there going to be a right. section on what a Senate parliamentarian is and what their purpose is? Because <laughs> I'm still not quite sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot. But I think it really is. I mean, it's a lot about allowing students to start to, to learn government by exercising their, their voice and starting mm -hmm. to be a part of that. Because the other big issue we have, and you hear this, especially right now, we have a lot of freshmen in the in the legis state legislature. And I keep seeing all of their comments on Twitter, lots of going different directions. We won't go into all of that. But one of the things I keep laughing about is they're like, if I get asked about a federal issue one more time, and I'm like, mm -hmm. I know my mission in life to get, I mean, some of them are like high school seniors, but they don't know. And a big part of that is because they're learning federal government. So they're going up there and they're doing exactly what we would hope they would do. They're practicing their civic knowledge but the only knowledge they have is around the federal government. So they're asking their state representative you know, all of these federal issues. And frankly, our, our state legislature doesn't know a lot about what's going on with the federal government when they're in the middle of lots of things and, and not dissing on them. It's just that things move fast and they're different entities. The other thing to think about, and this is what we talk to our students about, is like you look at, you know, the lifetime of a bill or whatever, however you want to talk about a bill. What is what goes into creating a bill? They're not writing bills when they're in session. And so there's a lot of advocacy work. There's a lot of relationship building. There's a lot of research that needs to go into all of these different pieces of legislation. And frankly, one of the things we would like to see, and we hope by including more students in actually having access to civic education, is we truly do have a more inclusive democracy. And just like if you're on a, a committee with an organization that is inclusive, it takes time to get everyone at the table and to have those conversations and to hear their struggles and their challenges and then to troubleshoot those and then come up with some kind of policy that actually makes sense and moves more people forward than it moves backwards. And I think what you see when, when we just focus on the three months that they're in session or we just focus on the final vote where the bill becomes a law, we lose sight of all of those different opportunities for public input. And that's really, really critical to having better, better democracy. I just made the mistake in what I said, because when I learned that if you want to actually try to get a bill, 
to be voted on during the upcoming session, like that work is done months ahead of time. Those bills have been already written. So when they're in session, like it's not natural for people to think that work is being done when they're not there, but a lot of work is being done when they're not there. And to make a change, you have to know the schedule of it. And I know that Oklahoma has one of the longer constitutions of the United States. And so you have to know how our state government works. We had a student um, was doing, a, they were doing a project on education funding in when we first started. So this was probably 28 a student from um, Southeast, Southeast high school in Oklahoma city. I went into his class and he brought out, it was literally at least four reams worth of paper. He had printed out the entire state constitution. And I was like, where did you get the funding to do that? And he, mm-hmm. I can't remember, but he was in one of their special programs and they had like unlimited use of the copy machine when everyone else was restricted to like 50 per class or something. And I was like, oh my goodness, please do not tell anyone that this was a part of your generation citizen project. But yeah, it is, it's a long constitution. It's a complicated constitution. And we've gotten to the point where even like in recent days, we're making constitute or trying to make constitutional adjustments all the time. And those are really challenging to reverse. Well, it's been, it's been an interesting thing with Oklahoma government in general is that it seems that most instances, significant impact to Oklahoma laws, rules, and government has occurred via statewide votes rather than the legislature, which is kind of a double-edged sword. Like you're saying, I mean, it, it, when you put those things into the Constitution, they become very difficult to change. But on the plus side, it also means that a legislature that doesn't agree with the rest of the state makes it difficult for them to undo them as well. So it's it's been an odd thing to see so little accomplished over the last several years in the legislature, but significant changes through you know these state questions. And I I don't know if that is something that we see in other states or if that's just an Oklahoma phenomenon. Well, I mean, there are different laws for each state about how state questions work. I think there are a lot of states. California is another state that I think has a similar kind of governing structure where they have a lot of state questions kind of thing. Oklahoma right now, I don't know how many are left. Thursday is, well, this week is a deadline week. So everything that's not heard in the house or the side it came out of will not be heard this session. And I, there were at least, I haven't counted recently, but like close to a dozen, I think, laws that were trying to really limit that mm-hmm. from happening, which is frustrating, you know, as a person. It's like, okay, well, we don't want, you know, these things could be decided by our legislators. And they aren't really completely at total opposite sides of things. But because a lot of times it feels like we want to say like something sweeping, like I've never passed a tax increase or I've never done that. You know, you have these like sweeping things that then it's like, well, I can't vote on that in that way because it kind of grays that area. And I don't want to gray that because I'm running for office, you know, in a year or two years. That's frustrating. And so it would behoove them to maybe take an action civics course and really learn how to at least have some more com- some more nuanced conversations to where, again, you know, we're passing laws that we're moving more people forward than we're moving backwards. How much are you able to talk to the executive directors of the other state programs and sort of compare notes, the differences between Oklahoma, Texas, Massachusetts, New York? Because even if you're someone like me who has lived on the East Coast, like you have an idea of how complicated a government may or may not be. But my actual life experience has showed me sometimes it's a little bit reverse about 
what is more complicated and where that complication would be. So do you get a chance to check in with the other executive directors and either complain or joke about which states are easier to do certain things in? All of the above. And of course, Massachusetts is where democracy began and education, like, you know, it's like where everything happens 20 years before everything else in Boston. So being a a civics education organization, of course, you know, they passed this, I think uh, about 18 months ago, they passed this really robust civics education bill. And so now we're talking about how do we actually mobilize all of, you know, these teachers and get the training and get all of that, because now it's like state law, they have to do it. And there is funding to support it but they have to do it. I, as far as your question of of organizationally, I talk to our executive directors all the time. We, Generation Citizen is very intentionally working. Like we are one organization. We have a site in Oklahoma. I run our Oklahoma site. So I, I work very deeply in the context of our education system and the policy work that happens here. But we very much have a universal goal, which is making sure that this type of robust civics can happen anywhere. And so in many ways, I think they learn as much or more from the work we're doing here, because there are so many states who are limited in education funding, who, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, that one of the things that really has gotten cut, both here in Oklahoma and in other states that have similar education funding issues, is social studies professional development. You know, if you're in Massachusetts or in California, you've got regional social studies conferences all over the place that you can go to and participate in. For us to send them, we finally had the National Social Studies Conference in Austin, Texas, and everyone was like, oh, great, that's right next door to you. I'm like, no, mm. not really. And it's actually quite expensive to get our teachers to Austin, Texas. So we are trying, and my personal mission and the mission of, of the Oklahoma kind of site of Generation Citizen is to become just that, a place where we are a regional hub where teachers can come and learn and experience this and see what happens and how city councils are transformed when students are participating. And now we're encouraging you know, young people to be on boards and helping work with board members to understand what it looks like to work with a young person. You know, people always say, oh, I want to young person on my board, I would love to have their input. And then they ask them a question and they just get blank stares. And I'm like, well, you kind of have to build a relationship and a rapport and some trust before. And our students don't know everything about everything. They know a lot about their own experience. And so if you can tap into their own personal experience, you know, they're a wealth of knowledge, Um, get much beside that. And they've got a lot of developing going on. They're not always up to date on every education policy or whatever, but they sure know how their school is best serving them and where the areas of growth are. Chris and I had a guest on the podcast, and I wish I could remember which one of our amazing guests told us this, but that the writing of an op-ed or a letter to the editor is still an incredibly effective tool. I noticed that in your curriculum, like you help train students on how to write a letter to the editor. So I asked this again, in 2021. Is this still an effective tool? It's an absolutely <laughs> effective tool. You know, when we are teaching our curriculum, when we look at, okay, there's, they're building their action plan, we want to look at three things. They need to really build their case and do their research. They need to gain community support and get community input for whatever the policy is they're trying to uh, change. And then they need to advocate to that policymaker. And I think a lot of times people write an op-ed thinking that the one policymaker is going to read this one op-ed and change their opinion. That seems so far-fetched. I don't know if that will happen. I don't know. If you write a really great op-ed, it might. I think what the op-ed, though, does is it 
it invites more people to the conversation and it really rallies support around you so that when you start to get some momentum and that uh, city council person or whomever comes to you and says, does anyone else care about this? You say, yes, I wrote this op-ed. And in fact, I've got all of these responses and, and people do care about it. And I also think it gives people language to advocate for themselves because a lot of times they'll hear the title of a bill or a topic that's coming up at their school board meeting, but they won't necessarily you know, know where to even start to research all of that. You can often go to a really good op-ed list, two or three really key research points or um, arguments for why that exists. And you can say, oh, yes, I agree or I disagree with that or I agree with this part and not that part. So I think an op-ed is, is really important. Um, however, I don't know how much it affects a, a policy uh, maker. I think that still face-to-face meeting, even in the time of COVID, is the best way. Um, although phone calls, I'm hearing emails are less and less effective, but I think an email is still pretty effective if it's really written. It's not just a form email, but you've kind of actually got your own story or perspective as a part of it. I think that's still pretty effective. Is there a part of the curriculum that is contacting you know, their representatives, city councilors directly about a particular policy? Absolutely. That is part of their action plan. And so, and actually we track um, just because we're trying, you know, to continue to build our curriculum and our hone our skills in a in more effective way. We actually track how many court classes every year have made contact and got a response from a policymaker. And it's pretty high. It, I mean, this last year with COVID has been a little rough, but you know, you're looking at 60, 70% of our classes. Yeah. They actually reach out and make contact and get a response. And sometimes it's an email, sometimes it's a phone call, but we've also had classes go up and listen to a legislator, you know, argue for a bill and take questions and all of that. So it just kind of depends on the situation. It, it, it always, it does. It's one of those things that to me was a surprising thing to learn, but even state representatives, if enough people, enough of their constituents call and contact them, whether they truly believe it or not, they they will change their mind on stuff. Now, it may not be on everything, but that I think people don't understand the power of you know, collectively contacting people. And so I, I do think it's important for students to learn that, that they don't have to just sit by and let government happen to them, that and and just voting once every you know, two years or four years isn't the only way that they can impact their government. So I think, now, once again, that was something that I kind of conceptually knew when I was younger, but didn't really understand until I was probably in my 30s. So I think it's really amazing and powerful that that kids are, are learning it now, you know, getting a jump start on people like me. Yeah, I think that it is important to do that. I th- and I've learned that most of our legislators really like talking to students, especially if they've done their homework and they have some really valid points. And the other thing that we talk a lot with students, or if I happen to be in a classroom and they're on their way to meet with somebody, I think it's important to remember that just because you're an elected official doesn't mean everything about everything. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You're not elected based on like your depth of knowledge. It's more you're elected on I don't know, we can go on a different path, but you're elected for lots of different reasons. <laughs> you, if any, are elected because they have a depth of knowledge of everything. And education is one of those, while we have a bunch of teachers, there's still a bunch of education policy stuff that not even a classroom teacher would necessarily understand. And so when you go in and talk to either a legislature or legislator or a 
city council person or whomever you're speaking with, assuming goodwill that they really just want to learn and being able to use your personal story and your personal experience and how that has affected you or would affect you, I think is really powerful. And yeah, you get five or 10 of those and absolutely you are going to start thinking differently about how how that works. And one, you know, just real quick story that I think touches on this is we had, we were working with a school, Dimensions, which is an alternative school in Norman uh, Public Schools, and they had a, a big bond issue. I don't know if you remember this. I think the bond passed in maybe 2016. I don't know. This was around 2018, 2019 that we were in this particular class. So they were at the phase where the bond had passed and they were remodeling all of the high schools. And it was in the paper all the time about how fabulous these high schools were. Well, the alternative school, which was also a Norman high school, was not getting any, but was getting very little from the bond issue. And these students were asking why, and they called in the finance director and she gave them actually a really fabulous explanation about school funding, but it really still didn't get at the, the issue of why they were being left out. Those students could have gotten really defensive and really mad. They were like, okay, we just want to solve this problem. So we understand we weren't in this bond issue and they worked with them. They suggested that they write in and be a part of the next bond issue. Now, keep in mind, these students wouldn't be in school. They would never see the benefit of that. But they did just that. And they reached out and they made sure that they were that their school was part of the next bond. It passed and they are in the process of rebuilding and intact that entire school, I think they got like $90 million to build a new alternative campus. And not only did they do that, they built awareness about the importance of um, alternative education in a diverse school district. Like that's a critical piece. It's not a deficit. It's actually a huge addition to the school district. And so I, I always think back to that story of how empowering that is for students to be able to talk about their own story, make a significant change like that. And looking back now, their community can point to these students that really kind of move the needle on that issue. That's an amazing story. I love the fact that the students didn't instantly become cynical about it. They're like, this, not might, this, this might not help us, but it's going to help the next group. And that's a worthwhile investment of our time. But for the majority of our listeners, other than my 14-year-old nephew, most of our listeners are adults. So what can we as adults do to help Generation Citizen build a more civically engaged populace and education system? I think one of the main things that people can do is to key is to start expecting that public school that schools have robust civics education and asking questions. I get all the time people who just assume that school looked exactly like it did when they were growing up. And maybe they went to a school where they did. They happen to have like the most phenomenal government teacher and they just assume that's everywhere. That's definitely not the case. And we see all the time, especially as education funding gets, you know, pulled more and more directions, these classes are getting canceled and teachers are not getting the professional development they need. And so I definitely think it's something that every adult can advocate, whether they have kids in school or not, whether they have children or not, and whether or not um, they're in public school. It really is imperative that we go to our school boards and we really make sure that they're providing these resources for their students. And then the other thing that I think um, adults can do, I'm part of uh, Generation Citizen is partnered with Tulsa Changemakers, League of Women Voters, lots of different groups. And then we have the Civic Learning Coalition. 
And that's something that is a group of organizations and individuals who just believe that not only is there a deficit in civics education in our schools, but it extends outside of our schools because now we've got about 30 years where we've had not enough of that municipal and state government. And so people think that it's almost one of those things where people are embarrassed that they don't know, so they don't ask and they don't do anything about it. We really are in a time where I think you just ask any question. There's not a stupid question. I think we saw that in you know, the 2016 election and everything that followed. We saw that with the insurrection. We see that almost daily now at the federal level that, you know, oh, how does this even work? And so I think being inquisitive and staying engaged and really trying to push aside some of that cynicism to just re-engage. And if it takes doing it for that next generation, will come support some of our generation citizen students while you're at it. Can we get some of the students from Generation Citizen to explain to us what the Senate parliamentarian does? I just want to clarify for our listeners, Generation Citizen is a nonprofit, correct? We are a nonprofit, yes, sir. I notice on your website you have, per usual, where nonprofits like to hide where you can donate on their website instead of putting it more out there and in front. That's a beef I have with nonprofits in general, but I imagine Generation Citizen would also be fine with donations from people, correct? Absolutely. Yes. So so Generation Citizen Oklahoma is funded pretty much 100% philanthropically, primarily through foundations, but then also a lot of individuals. And that is one unique thing about Oklahoma, our site is we are the only site that does not have any fee for service aspect of our budget. And then we had to do that because we didn't, the avenues when we first started this were not there. Typically, there's just not in our public schools here in Oklahoma, there's not a lot of extra dollars to move around. We're hoping to change that. We're hoping to change that at some point. But so yes, every dollar definitely counts. And we have a teacher leadership donor network that it really does like so much of what we do, most of what you're paying for. If you Um, donate to Generation Citizen is truly going back into training for our teachers and recruiting them and helping them become leaders in their field. Because this policy work needs to happen at the state level and it needs to happen at the municipal level. But it's also a lot of our teachers having to advocate for themselves too about how do you evaluate something like action civics? You know, this is not something that's like, if you get four answers right, you know, you get an A kind of thing. Like this is, it's more about how, how you're growing and developing and becoming an advocate and doing research and all of those things. One of the toughest things when you're doing any type of advocacy work is especially the first time when you fail. And I can imagine for, for kids when it's their first time to try to advocate for some kind of policy, if they aren't successful, how do you build them up and, and keep them going to, you know, learn from that and continue to try and stay engaged? That's a great question. And I'm glad that you asked because that's actually, you know, built into our curriculum and our professional development. Reflection on impact and approach is a huge part of the work that we do. So at each, you know, there's lots of different points throughout the semester when they're working on the projects. And then obviously at the very end where students are really spending time considering their efforts, what did they do right? What could they have done differently? What would they have rather seen? All of those things. And then we just generally 
sort of operate off of the fact that change is slow and meaningful change is really slow a lot of the time. But I don't think you can rest on your laurels there and say, well, that's enough. It just takes a long time. I think really reflecting that constant reflection. And that's honestly where deeper learning is happening as well, because they're able to think a lot of times it's like, oh, I went to the wrong person or I went to the wrong group. We lost two weeks because we waited on this guest speaker. We didn't realize we should have gone to a different area. We were speaking to the wrong committee, all sorts of things like that. And so I would say those kind of disappointments, as you know, if you would consider them, I, those are pretty frequent throughout this whole process. But I think because it's built in and it's intuitive as a part of the process, the reflection just builds that confidence. And you know, we do survey students at the beginning and the end of our semester just to really get an understanding of how did they feel coming into the course about democracy and their participation in it and their agency and ability to affect change. And even with those kind of, you know, disappointments, the growth is huge in just one semester of getting to work with their classmates on one focused issue that is pretty incredible and quite frankly motivates me to do what I'm doing, even though change is slow and it can be frustrating. Well, and hopefully we see some of these students in our civic and municipal and state government someday too, because I, I, I would will. say that a lot of our... A lot of the people in our state government could use a civics lesson based on some of the bills they try to pass, but that's a different topic. Maybe. Yeah, whatever happened with that Sasquatch bill? Did that get the the Did that actually get voted on? I don't think it got to a committee. <laughs> My years living away from Oklahoma, the very few times I heard about Oklahoma, like on the national news or the Daily Show or the Colbert Report or on Slate or the Washington Post or. Everywhere else, I get my, what most people in the state of Oklahoma would call, liberal fake news. It was always about something silly and ridiculous like this. And I was always like, come on, Oklahoma, I know other things are happening. I know this past year has been especially rough on schools and on the education system. So what has your organization done during this time to help students both in and out of the classroom, you know, make this sort of intensive government connection during COVID? And also, did you incorporate how states and the federal government were handling this crisis? Yeah, so we very early on started talking about just that. I mean, we didn't know, just like a lot of nonprofits, we weren't sure, you know, we have contracts with schools, we have commitments to funders, we were in just incomplete, what do we need to do to move during this time? And pretty early on, we coalesced around the theme that democracy doesn't pause and used that to sort of guide what we did. And through that, we ended up, it was more of a collection of resources than a campaign, but it was somewhat of a campaign involved. We really wanted students and teachers to realize that, yes, we know this is hard, but our government's about to make some really, at all levels, is about to make some really important decisions that are going to affect our lives and um, what they look like for the next year or whatever, however long, but then ultimately for the long haul. And so we wanted to keep people engaged. And so we had a series of student-led, we made sure that, you know, we have a pretty deep bench as far as students who are alumni across the country, who we made sure were invited to panels. We wanted students to be heard during that time and hear their perspectives. So we made sure to do that. And then we hosted a few of our own we shifted, we pulled out some of our curriculum and ended up with a few lessons that were sort of one-off lessons that were very specific around COVID. And we had a in English and Spanish, a teacher's guide, a self-guided student's lesson in each of those topic areas. 
and then a family lesson plan, knowing that we were going to see moms and dads helping students understand this as much as they were going to be. I have a 14 or 15 year old. So we were going to be much more involved in our students' education than we ever hoped for or desired, but we wanted to have resources for that. And then we really just started planning and started figuring out. We shifted a lot of our professional development are now on permanent online modules where we just do supplemental coaching in addition. And I think we're going to see a lot of changes moving forward in how uh, professional development is provided to teachers. And so in addition to making sure that democracy didn't pause and we were staying on top of all of that, we also have spent the last year really reflecting and trying to identify how that would shift. And like one example is I know some school districts now are going to do, I know Oklahoma City Public Schools, because that's the district my students are in. I think they're going to a model that they'll have two days of virtual PD a month. Um, so students will students will be virtual and asynchronous while teachers will have this PD built in, which is actually really amazing because that chunks their professional development and their learning communities in a very different way than just getting it in the summer and over Christmas break. Now we're thinking about the long term too of how we can shift to be even more relevant and responsive to our teachers and our students. We talked a lot about the organization. We also often like to ask, how have you kind of been navigating and surviving? I know you've mentioned that you have two kids at home that you've had to help with some edu with their own education. But so how have you been navigating the last year? Well, I can speak to that. I, I got my first vaccine today. Thank you, Chickasaw Nation. I do not qualify at this point for the Oklahoma, you know, levels. I don't think I would till the fourth level, but Chickasaw Nation opened it up to adult educators and people who do education remotely, which is what I do. So I was able to go to Purcell and do that. So I'm looking much more bright. Things are looking much more bright in that way. But I think just the collective trauma and fatigue that I think a lot of people are feeling is where I am most of the time. It was frightening. You know, a nonprofit is fun. It's also a business. And I've got people who rely on the fundraising that I do and the work that I do to have jobs. And so that from the very beginning hit hard that I wanted to make sure that anything that I did that I could hold on to to my staff and take care of them. I wanted to make sure that our teachers felt, you know, we're okay. And we work with this semester alone, about 60 teachers. That's a lot of teachers to make sure that you know, they have what they need, they feel supported. And then really working, we have pretty deep district partnerships in several of the districts we work with. And so I wanted to be as much of a resource as I could to kind of figure out, okay, what's your move? And then we make a count, we kind of do something that complements that sort of thing. And so there's just been a lot of pivoting, I would say, has been a common theme. But I am to the point now, especially getting the, the first dose of my vaccine, to the point of like looking what's next. And I think that this, in lots of ways, this last year has revealed a lot of ways our country can improve. But I think specifically in education, it just revealed things that I knew because I am in the weeds with it all the time about how inequitable our education system is. I think about resilience, not in that our kids are just resilience because they tripped on resiliency, but I do think about students being resilient in that they are young and a few small pivots can really lead to a lot of opportunities for them. And so I want to continue moving forward and thinking like at every move, what do we keep that work during this time? 
And what do we get to let go? And what do we need to keep pushing forward to make sure we don't lose sight of again? And we have it takes another pandemic or some other horrible thing to bring that back to the surface. So when you're not trying to save the future of our democracy, what have you been doing during this pandemic to relax? Are you the are you one of those people who has been binging a lot of TV shows and movies? Or are you one are you one of those um glass of wine watching a a nature doc documentary type of person? What has been sort of your pop culture comfort food during this crazy year, considering you have two teenage boys? So my first assumption is that you have not had a lot of free time, but I always like to be wrong. Yeah, so I am like hobby extraordinaire. I've always been that way, um, but I just haven't had time. So I'm constantly, I knit. So I've been knitting a lot. I had my little victory garden going and that I started as soon as the pandemic hit. And I was like, as long as it didn't die, I felt like we were going to live to see another day kind of thing. And I'm looking forward to doing that again. I've been cooking a lot and I've started baking bread. So I did jump onto that bandwagon. And then, yeah, a lot of show binging. It's funny you say that about my kids because they're at 14 and 15, which developmentally is like the phase when they start individuating from their parents. They'll hang out with us some. When, we, when the pandemic first started, I had this big thing that I really was into board games. And so every week I was like, buy new board games and we were going to play them. Well, again, these children that are individuating did not get into that. And then my husband got real sick of it. So, but then I will say the other thing, I don't know if this has changed, but something that has definitely been important is like social media, like mainly Twitter and LinkedIn. I have met so many people and like, I'm so eager now to actually get to meet them in person. I'm not sure that I would have survived because I have been, I know not every Oklahoman has felt the need to actually stay home and stay away from people. But I have done that. And so it can be pretty lonely and a lot of FOMO happening. So being on social media has been at least getting to talk to other civically minded progressive folks is always a joy. We also, I see your cat, and we, uh, which I will say, I'm still questioning if that was a good idea, but we named her Georgia and then her breeder, yes, I got it anyway, had uh, asked me what her middle name was. And I was like, I don't know. What's her mom's middle name? I'll name her. And it was Blue. And so our puppy is Georgia Blue. And so, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Amy, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. I know you've had a very, very busy day and we greatly appreciate it. And we hope to reconnect with you as the year goes on and certain elections come up. Because Chris and I are going to have more questions as we learn what we don't know about how our government works and how you are teaching that to students in school. So again, thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to our conversation with Amy. Please go to generationcitizen.com to support them in this awesome program. And speaking of the internet, please follow Pod for Good on Facebook, on Instagram, and the Twitter. And of course, please subscribe and or follow, depending on which version of iOS you currently have, and leave us a review if you can. Again, we will read it on air, unedited. No one has taken advantage of this fact yet. Chris and I will say ridiculous things for free. That's true. Mm -hmm. uh, and as always, get it done. Broken Arrow, get your together. And even if you've gotten both shots, wear a mask. 